Well, hi, everyone, and welcome. You are on the Spiritual Exercises. I'm Rachel Amaday, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. This is finally happening. We've been trying to make it happen for way too long, um, but my sister from all the way across the country is joining me today, and she has some amazing credentials. By the way, before I even get into her, everything that she's done with her beautiful life, um, I have to say she's one of my favorite writers I ever get to read. Every time that she sends me something, I think her writing is so incredibly gorgeous. And that is why you've got to check out um, her column with Fanfare. And I think it's called Mothers in Media, but she's going to correct me here in a second. Yeah. But it's about how <laughs> mothers are portrayed in media and you're going to, I mean, I'm always shocked actually at the reality of how women and moms are portrayed in media, but for moms in particular, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bleak out there. Um, and I know that, uh, on the other side of Christianity, we're trying to fix that. So she has an incredible column worth reading, worth checking out. She's been in education for over 10 years. Um, she has her master's in education and she's just an incredible writer and creator. So please welcome Jessica. Kalei too. Hi, Jess. Hey, Rach. I'm so glad we're doing this, even though it's always like rushed and in between doing kids stuff and, you know, in between all the other life things that are going on. Mm -hmm. But it's really nice to have you on because, oh, by, by the way, correct me. What's the name of your column? Uh, motherhood on camera. Motherhood on camera. I always put two M's together for some odd reason. I want to say media, but it's motherhood on camera. Alliteration. <laughs> tempting. Always tempting. But she always sends me her articles and they're always really fabulous and really you, um, deeply and well thought out. And so you're the perfect person to talk to about women in general, I think, um, just in culture and specifically in the West and in our Christian culture. Uh, we have some real disagreements, I guess, in the church, in the church body about women, women teaching, women in leadership, um, what positions should women have? And one really strange and I think kind of dangerous movement I've been noticing that we talked about beforehand. I haven't done enough research into this, neither have you, but I just want to make a point that there's a movement called Christian nationalism happening. I'm probably going to do an episode about it um, because when I bring it up to people, people are very conflicted and confused over what this movement is and what it means. I think that's on purpose. Um, I think a lot of people just means that it's Christians who are very conservative and want to vote conservative values in. But if you follow some people on X um, or on social media who are very big into Christian nationalism, there's a lot of other stuff that's starting to sneak into the messaging of that movement. Some of it very much centered around somehow, and this is a theological idea that somehow we're going to Christianize the nations, that we're going to go and we're actually going to make every government Christian. This is actually a theological perspective people have. They actually believe that before Jesus returns, we're going to successfully have Christian political leadership that isn't going to become abusive somehow, or, you know, that's going to have the perfect theology so that they can run the nation in a Christian way, which is kind of an insane idea, but it's out there. What sneaks into this movement is also the position that women are not allowed to teach spiritually. Women are not allowed to have positions that are of leadership in the church. I see it over and over and over again with a lot of people that are very pro-Christian nationalists, not all of them, but many of them. And so this is something that in the church body, we need to understand women, right? And we need to understand women from a biblical perspective, not just what do we think or how, you know, how, how should it be? What does the Bible actually say about women and how God views women and women's positions of being able to speak the word of God, know the word of God, teach the word of God? What does the Bible actually say? Now, Jess, before we dig into that aspect of things, I think it'd be really fascinating because you've done so much research in this. How is the world handling women and motherhood? What it, what have you observed, at least with the media and how the, what is the messaging that's out there, especially about motherhood? And I think motherhood in particular, because families are being degraded consistently by culture that is, it, it's um, intentional. It's being done on purpose. There's constantly an attack against the family. And so of course there's a really strong attack against moms. What are you seeing in media with that? I mean, one problem I've <clears throat> run into consistently uh, is that there's not 
always enough to write about because I think in film and in television, you actually don't have a ton of characters who are mothers. So it isn't something that comes up in the culture often. Mm -hmm. If they are characters, they're side characters, or their motherhood is very much sidelined. So it's not a huge part of what's going on in the show, what's going on in the, in the film. There are exceptions. Um, there's a really fascinating, beautiful film I just watched called Earth Mama um, that maybe we could talk about later, came out this past year. But in general, there's a dearth of content. I hate that word. I, I really hate it. I'm going to say <laughs> content. Ugh. Anyway, it, it bothers me. But in the film and television realm, the biggest crime against mothers is just not having it enough mothers in the picture. In the broader culture, there does seem to be kind of a raging, um, I, it's not really a debate, it's just people yelling at each other. So I wouldn't call that a debate, but you, you see online the people who are trying to portray motherhood as this as like you can be the perfect mom and have the perfect house and look so good and get up at five to work out, which I, I like to do. I, I enjoy getting up at five and working out. I just don't look like those moms and I don't have a day like those moms. So they go, <laughs> they go from getting up at five and working out into a whole scene I cannot I cannot achieve. Right. I can do the 5 a.m. run and that's that's the only part of that I can do. <laughs> but there's there's that realm versus the opposite, or I guess maybe not the opposite, but kind of the backlash to that, which is single people or childless people sh shooting videos and little, you know, diaries about how beautiful their free time is and all the things they do because they don't have kids. And they're they're that explicit because right. I don't have a child. I can sleep in and I can go see whatever yeah. movies I want and I can take a trip whenever I want to. And um, it's really childish. I think it's really in dehumanizing to both sides to kind of flatten flatten it into, well, the beautiful life is with kids or the beautiful life is without kids. Um, neither one of these portrayals is in any way three-dimensional. And that that's because they're doing little TikTok videos. It can't be three-dimensional. It can't actually get at anything meaningful, which would get us into a much bigger conversation about just the nature of how we consume, I would call that content because it's it it's disposable. So I, I'm I'm okay with calling those little videos content. It's disposable, but it's having a pretty big impact in a lot of ways. And I think it's these thoughts, these thought processes, the idea like, well, my my life is beautiful because I have kids, and my life is beautiful because I don't have kids. What you're talking about is people who haven't really sat down and thought through number one, the implications of of that sort of speech, the implications of that sort of a message. But number two, they have also not thought through any care or thought for anyone else out there. I mean, there's just no care or thought about who are you talking to and why are you having this conversation? It's so self-centered. It's so much navel gazing and it is kind of sickening. It's like, what is, what is the, you got on here to literally self-promote in the most shallow way possible. You're literally saying something that we all grew up saying we hated doing, right? You're literally getting on there and being like, the life I chose is the best life and I have the best <laughs> life because and nobody else has the life I have because yeah. it's like, you got to be kidding. That's not, what is the point? But it is with younger people who don't know how to think or ask questions, right? To question everything. I feel like that's just gotten thrown out the window to sit down and go, well, wait a second. What does it mean to tell people your life is meaningful because you don't have kids? What is the message there? What is the actual point? Is that really any, is that really the, the, the barometer for meaning in life is not mm -hmm. having kids? Is that really the barometer? And people who have kids, they're going to all say, well, no, my life got more meaningful when I had kids, but that doesn't mean your life isn't meaningful. You know, but yet we have people who have kids going on and saying, well, no, your life can't be meaningful until you have kids. None of this is actually true. And none of this, I don't, I, I think at the core, most people don't even believe this stuff, right? They just, 
are looking for popularity. <laughs> that's kind of my, that's oh, yeah. what I think is going on. But it's really poor messaging for younger generations. And I think it continues to speak into this issue we're having of mothers feeling like it's the same issue with men aging gracefully and women not getting to age in some ways. Moms don't get to have a position on the screen. They're not having a position then in the media in an equitable way. And when they are portrayed, often it's the crazy mom or it's the crazy stepmom or mm -hmm. it's the, the mom who's breaking down because she can't handle having her kids. She yeah. can't handle her life. It's very, very... Um, degrading towards women and motherhood in general. Yeah. And could I just know, I'd love to note here for people who are feeling really depressed and rightfully after, you know, what we consume and, and all the things that you just pointed out, there was one beautiful exception to that this year in the movies. And that was, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Oh, I did not read the Judy Bloom books when I was young, and I didn't really have a huge investment in this movie. I kind of watched it random. I mean, it was just somebody, I, I think it was mom, <laughs> told me I should watch it. And I was like, okay, because you don't think it's going to be about mothers, yeah, it's mother. about um, young Margaret. But actually, her mother, who's played by Rachel McAdams, who I just always, always love. Yeah. The, she just has such a presence and such a, a, a story arc mm -hmm. in that film that values her as a woman, as a human, as a mom. She's all these things. And even though she is struggling in some ways, uh, it doesn't define her mm -hmm. and it doesn't define her motherhood. Yeah. So I would recommend, I would highly recommend that movie because awesome. they really nailed it in okay. putting a mom on screen who is relatable, who is a deep person, um, who doesn't have everything figured out, but who is so lovely and such a wonderful mom. So yeah, that's a good one. I, I love that. I think, you know, what I see in scripture when I when I think about the position of motherhood, you have this incredible moment with Mary, right? That God chooses. Um, I know she's always infant infantilized. What's the right term there? <laughs> that is definitely the right the right term. Is that the right term? Where we take I to mean, calling her a girl, and you know, she's we make just her a girl. younger than she Ugh. probably was. Right. The reality yeah. is she probably wasn't as young as many of the depictions of her have been. And then we make her so meek and mild. She almost doesn't have a presence. You feel like she's going to fall over at any moment in every depiction of her. Well, so except I, for some of the great art pieces of her. There are some great art pieces that show a very strong woman. Um, but a lot of times I feel like film wise, we've had a view of Mary I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of it, I guess. You know, I, I don't know. Well, I I think in the Protestant church, there has, in our lifetime, I haven't studied Protestant history enough to know what was going on before mid-century America where Mary was concerned. But in our lifetime, I think in our parents' lifetime, in the Protestant church, she was kind of turned into a a very young teenager who almost like didn't know what was going on right? <laughs> was like me. Oh my gosh. Just what's happening. And Oh, oh I, I, oh. I will do as you say. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you just have a very, uh, again, kind of a two dimensional character that mm -hmm. she's either. Yes. Uh, very unaware of what seems to be happening or just going along for the ride. She's, you know, very mild in personality or she's very, um, she's mourning. You only have two images of her as a human being, right? She's in mourning over her son's death or she's, you know, in the middle of a miraculous moment being infantilized. That's, that's how I have like, that's the imagery that I felt like I've been hit with, with Mary. But when you read the scriptural account of this woman, she was really obviously righteous, right? She was godly. She was, she had a strong stance and obviously a strong spirit. And to think of what 
God was going to have her go through, right? She has to escape with this child to Egypt, right? She has to leave, she has to leave things and go places and do things and hard things. And to think that this isn't a strong person, a righteous person, to think, you know, it's so strange to me, like God went and searched for Mary. We knew that it's interesting. We knew that Jesus was going to be born to a Joseph, right? That was prophesied that he would be the son of Joseph. He would be Messiah ben Yosef. Okay. So we knew that that would be related not only to Joseph, who, you know, was in the Old Testament, who was a servant till he became king, but we also knew it was going to be his dad. I mean, that was prophesied. But the, the Mary, right? She's this unique figure. I think that's why she gets mentioned a little bit more in the beginning of the story in some ways. She was, she had to be strong. She had to have a strong spirit and a strong will to go through the things that she went through to stay faithful to the cause and to the call. Um, you know, you have this moment with her and Jesus where she's like, Hey, go make some more wine, you know, <laughs> like at this wedding, like we need more wine, son, you know? And it, I mean, of all the things, right. Of all the things a mom says to her son in scripture, that's one of the stories that we get. Right. Yeah. And he's like, well, it's not my time to show off that I'm the groom, but he does it, you know, honoring his mother there. And she's just not the character I think that we've had portrayed to us. And I think some of the problems with that, some of the issues with media's portrayal, even of women in scripture, um, are that men especially, but even a lot of women, like there are women in that Christian nationalist movement. There are women on X just that have so many followers you can't believe and they post the most sexist stuff. Mm -hmm. I, you can't, I don't know if you've seen some of this stuff. They're, they're literally out there basically saying women belong in the kitchen barefoot and you're not allowed to question your husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of that. I try not to engage with it too much because oh, I'm no, never, yeah, I'm never sure how much that is a, a reflection of what they actually think versus a way to work the algorithms. And I think it's a way a to, I think it's a way to gain a following, but the problem is they do gain a large following and their followers have adopted these things based on Catholic and Protestant characterizations of people in scripture and these mischaracterizations. Of well, these and I would even say just the erasure. So I would say the story uh, of Abigail in first Samuel yeah. where nobody knows it, by her, the way, Who we don't knows get the story of Abigail. It's not really taught. Right? I mean, I, yeah. I went through uh, nearly 40 years in church, never hearing about it. So yeah, because pastors don't want to teach about a woman who questions and undermines her husband and wins the day. Well, just yeah. overtly, <laughs> for those who don't know, there's the brief version. I think I like to bring her up. I think we talked about it the only other time I've been <laughs> yeah. on the podcast, but um, her husband's denied David hospitality, that he needed food, he needed a place to stay. Her husband was a wealthy man in the area where David was hiding out and her husband says no. Abigail recognizes that she's married to an evil man and sneaks out with food and provisions for the men and begs David for mercy and speaks the truth, speaks the truth that her husband misses. And yes, yeah, she, she is rewarded for that. I mean, she's recognized as the one in the right. And there is no chastisement of her for not submitting, in fact, overtly rejecting what her husband was up to. And there are more, way more cases of that in the Bible. If you think about um, Rebecca, where Isaac wants to give the blessing to Esau and Rebecca's like, mm, I know these boys, this needs to go to Jacob. <laughs> I, she's like, I received a, here's, here's what's even crazier. Mm -hmm. Rebecca received a word from the Lord about her sons that her husband did not receive mm -hmm. and yeah. she does the right thing because of the word that she received from God yeah. undermining her husband's wishes. And she is considered righteous for this. The same thing happens with Moses's wife. Remember Moses isn't going to circumcise his son on the eighth day and there was going to be grave punishment, right? This was going to be a big deal. And his wife is like, I, I don't care. And this is Moses, right? This is like the great, 
prophet, right? The Like a, a great man, obviously, but he was going to miss something really important. She just goes ahead and makes sure it gets done so that there isn't this backlash. There isn't this. So you have these clear examples of women doing things outside of their husband's direction, outside of their husband's wishes, outside of their husband's knowledge, right? Like, and I've always been taught that those character traits, and I don't know if this is true for you too, I'd always been taught those character traits were wrong, but then you go to scripture and those women are considered righteous. And it's because just, you've always said this, and this is so true. Our allegiance is not to anyone but Yeshua. Our mm -hmm. first allegiance, no matter who you're married to, your first allegiance is to God Almighty. Yeah. And if you place your allegiance anywhere else, then you end up actually missing sometimes the will of God. And you are going to misunderstand these Bible stories if you don't understand that. Well, and even to bring it back to Mary, if you think about under the Christian nationalist or some of them, I'm not going to spend a lot of time not all of them, learning but some of them. about yeah. all of them, but apparently for some of them, under their view of the world, Joseph would have come to Mary and told her what was going to happen. Right. Because, you know, he's the man or whatever, but it is God who sends an angel to Mary herself to tell her what is going on. And she responds not to Joseph. She responds back to God. Yeah. And I think that what's sad to me in this arrangement is that it obviously this is just a perfect setup for all kinds of abuse and mistreatment within a marriage. Um, but it, it's not just the woman who loses out. I think men lose out when they don't have a true partner, when they don't have someone who can help them see their blind spots. Because that's the thing is that all of us have strengths and then we have weaknesses. And the, I think in a marriage, what you're hoping is that your spouse is going to be able to balance out some of your weaknesses and take on some of the things you're not, you know, that you're not great at or that, I, I do think the right word is probably a blind spot. I mean, in, in my own life, I've certainly seen that. And I've thought often, what would happen if I was just quiet? You know, but I've also thought, what would happen if, like, my husband didn't say, hey, what are you doing? Right. You know, because I've been, I am also, I mean, it's hard to believe. I am also sometimes wrong. <laughs> We, we need that. That's what wholeness means, right? In a marriage, you're supposed to have feedback. And, and the original Hebrew creation story really talks about Eve being created as an opposing partner for Adam, that it wasn't good that Adam was alone. And it wasn't good that Adam was alone with only his ideas. And so he needed somebody that would come up and say, well, that idea is interesting, but what about this? Or someone that would push back, someone that would that would round out his views and vice versa, right? And so because we don't have that original language very well laid out in a lot of our English translations, we miss the actual point of the marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden, the real way that God had actually created them to exist and coexist together. It was absolutely on equal footing. They were different for a reason. They were different to purposefully push back. But what, what I think is one of the bigger problems is that we extend out. We think that, and this is what I see people who have kind of a lower view of women. I agree with you, by the way, your point about men missing out, women missing out when we do this. One of the things I've always thought is um, if men can't learn from women, if men refuse to learn spiritual ideas from women, they're missing out on 50% of their possible learning opportunities. Mm -hmm. And if women have taken this idea, we can learn from both men and women, we're getting a much more whole view of things. That's a giant loss for men, in my opinion. And really, shouldn't they need to sit down and consider, well, if you're going to have these women teaching your children, but you believe that they're deceived, shouldn't you also maybe stop working and be the stay-at-home person? Because here's, here's, what, here's what they say. A lot of the people have this view that women can't teach in church or, or teach anything spiritual to men. They really believe that because women, there's this weird verse that says, you know, Eve was the one deceived, right? Is this, this a Paul? Is yeah. this a Paul situation? 
they really believe that that extends then what that means is it's not just about your marriage it's not just about the headship of your marriage it's about any men anywhere right mm -hmm. and so and that paul is when he says i don't allow women to teach that he's somehow quoting the torah which he's not he's giving a personal opinion about the culture and the time of that day which I address in my book, but it's all, there's a lot of historical meaning and reasoning behind Paul's advice at that time. But they extend this out to just any situation. Women can't be leaders of any men and women can't teach any men. Well, think about all that you're missing out on. Think about the fact, though, that you mostly have women teaching the children. When are men going to be the stay-at-home dads? Because you can't have women that are deceived teaching kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, you can't actually culturally apply that. But you also no. actually don't, you actually don't see this in scripture. And I want to pull a verse that I've never seen before. It's in Acts. I've never, oh, I've read it before. I've just never taken good note of it. So in Acts, we have all these characters, right? We've got Paul, we've got Peter, we've got disciples. And um, I want to just be real careful about who's talking here. It's Paul. No, it's not Paul. But Paul is with them, okay? So it's in Acts 21, verse 7. Is where I'll start. It says, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay, this is Paul, the disciples. They go to stay with one of their leaders in the church. And he has four daughters. Now, prophecy is just right understanding of scripture, right? Prophecy just implies that you can rightly divide the word of God and rightly apply it. So if all women are too deceived to teach, why do we see this in the New Testament? Mm -hmm. Why do we see women who have the gift of rightly dividing the word of God? It's called prophecy, being able to teach four of them. And they're visited by Paul and the disciples. If Paul really believed that women could not actually teach, that he would have rebuked them or they would have been called false prophets. Right. But they're right. Not. And I guess, again, when you're taking scripture and you're looking at it in a whole context, um, I, I'm just going to make an analogy here. There are scriptures in the Old Testament dealing with slavery. And then there are some scriptures in the New Testament, specifically the book of Philemon, that are dealing with the issue of slavery. And they are not calling for the immediate abolition of slavery. Um, I mean, Paul is sneaking a lot of very, I think, stringent criticisms of slavery into the book of Philemon. If yeah. you if you read it carefully, but it, he's, he's not calling for this escaped slave to um, stay, stay escaped. He's sending him back with this letter to Philemon, um, explaining how Paul expects Philemon to be treated. Mm. Um, I'm sorry. I think his name is Onesimus is the escaped mm. slave, but if I'm wrong, we'll make a note of it. Um, how Philemon is to treat this slave who has escaped from him. And Paul is very clear that he is to treat him with respect. In fact, to treat him as a brother right. and not. And then he's sending his own money to right. say, for whatever you've lost here, here's what, you know, let me pay you so that you don't take out your anger on this person who has become a believer and who is your brother in Christ. So th again, there's a lot there. That but is, there's, but there's a critiquing lot of, yeah. the whole institution of slavery right. with, I think, ultimately, the vision of God, of course, is slavery to be abolished. God despises slavery, but it's not an immediate thing. And so I think in the context of the time that the New Testament is being written, you have an incredibly sexist society that is unbelievably oppressive to women across the board. And of course, we're talking about a pagan society. I mean, the New Testament is written in a completely pagan atmosphere. These are not Christians. This is not a Christian society, right. uh, but it is a, a really oppressive society where women are concerned. Uh, that 
literally they're just think thought of as property not right. as not as fellow human beings and the new testament is the first to ever ever say as far as i know you know male and female slave and free like you are one in christ there right. is no that you nobody is above anybody else yeah so again if you're going to interpret these passages you have to look at the totality of scripture and you have to understand that god has a vision for where he wants us to be understanding that revolutionary revolutionary change overnight is not really a thing human beings can do or that we're get at it's an incremental process if you think right. about your own life you you know we don't just go to bed and wake up new people like we change incrementally ourselves so to hold on to these um first century pagan views of women and insist that yes we can change our position on slavery we're not we're no longer making any any kinds of excuses for slavery but we're going to still make a lot of excuses and in fact we're going to insist that these ancient oppressive views of women are god's will gross no get out of my and feet they're, they're clearly <laughs> i know they're clearly not because yeah. god when god created things perfectly the ideal was complete equality and a face-to-face -face view. Now, obviously what ended up happening with sin is that men being the more physically powerful have always been um, in every culture throughout the all of time since sin, right? Men have oppressed women culturally or women have oppressed themselves. There has been a real, it's like Satan went after Eve in the garden first and he can't, he can't not do that. That's like what he is after is making sure that women are constantly oppressed culture to culture and constantly used, right? Used to take men down, used to take society down, um, used to kill unborn children. I mean, women are just used and abused by the enemy constantly. Um, and so what you have is God basically saying the man is supposed to be the protector, right? When we talk about headship, when we talk about when Christ says, you know, when Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. There is a protector and a caretaker and a servant in that de definition, the defining terms. Like your husband has a natural inclination to make sure that no other man uses and hurts you, right? That is his natural inclination for a reason. He's supposed to make sure that you're well taken care of. That's I think, I actually think I would argue with that. I don't, I think that has become a norm over time. I don't know that that's the natural inclination. Well, that's what the Bible talks about. So that's why women were under the headship of their father until their husband, right? Because that was protective. Dad protected his daughters and didn't let them just go out and get used and abused by other men. That was considered disgraceful, right? And harming to her, obviously, because in a culture, especially like they had, women didn't have well, jobs. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that it does doesn't eventually become a norm within a certain religious tradition, but I would say in the like natural state, I think um, for a man to be faithful to and protective of one woman exclusively is not necessarily a natural inclination. No, I don't think it's natural, but I think it's what God means by headship. I think he means that it's the man's job to do what Christ does for his church. Now, Christ doesn't force his force people to follow him or love him, right? He's not an abusive um, figure towards human beings. We all have choice. His church does as well, right? He eventually comes back and fixes things, but he gives long time for his people to be faithful, for his church to be faithful. He died on behalf, right? He protected, he he rescued from the, the hand of death, his church, his bride. He literally took death away. That's a servant and a protector, right? So mm -hmm. the things that we have said mean headship. What a lot of men believe headship means is that you tell your wife and your family what to do. And no matter what, your way wins. That's a, what a lot of men believe headship is. But I don't think that's the biblical definition of male headship over a family. I don't think that's what it's saying. It's not saying you tell your wife what to do. It's something completely different. It's the example of what Christ did. And 
Christ never forces people to follow him. He's not, he doesn't grab a rope and make everybody come after him, right? Mm-hmm. He he throws an idea out there. He's a good leader. He he's he rescues, right? He helps, he saves, he makes whole. And then those people respond, right? There's this, there's this action and response. There's this, this gift and then this gift back. That is not the traditional like I would say last couple hundred years view in America in a lot of ways of spiritual headship. And so we have a problem with what the Bible says male headship is and what culture and well, the, well what the church has decided male headship is. Yeah, that's that's like a big complicated long yeah, it is. But know, it's important to look at kind of the debate script, the script what does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible actually do? Does it expand headship to any man over all women? Never. It never does that. It never says that, you know, the church belongs to, you know, the husband, Mm -hmm. the groom, the one groom, but then the church also has to follow all of these other things. No, that's not the, the picture of spiritual headship. It's always just between a man and a wife, right? A family. And so one of the biggest issues I think the church has is, is, how can you expand headship into every aspect of culture and church, you know, function when this was always about husband and wife? Well, you can't. I think the problem is it's a it's an enclosed hermetically sealed situation, because if you believe men are the only ones who can have leadership at a church, then the only people in leadership at the church will be men and they will just be self-reinforcing right. those kinds of ideas. If there were women who were valued and equal and at that table, then other ideas would probably come to light. You are right. There are women who also buy into this ideology. How much it's authentic or not, it varies, I'm sure. It varies a lot. Um, (laughs) I actually think it's kind of funny. You know, I I think that they gain a lot of favor from men from having that view. Oh, I just say, uh, but the wrong kind yeah. of men. I mean, oh, no, to but me, it doesn't matter to them. Here, the weird paradox in this is that to me, and I think to most healthy women who who are not psychologically struggling with their identity, um, the most masculine, attractive men are the men who are not threatened by women and who yeah. are not constantly needing to define themselves as superior to women. Totally. It's just the case. They're the most masculine and in many ways, I would say attractive, not like, you know, romantically attractive, but just like people you want to be around people who are interesting and have interesting things to contribute and have the best kinds of relationships with men and women and family members, et cetera. And I think, unfortunately, one thing I would like to say to Christian women is that because of the history and because of the cultural moment that we're in, and as you pointed out, the rise of Christian nationalism, you actually have to speak up. You have to be informed and you're going to have to fight for the kind of treatment that you deserve. It's not going to come um, just because it should. And so please do not be afraid of the fight. There are fights that are worth having. There are um, debates that are worth having when something is going on in the church or in a relationship that you have that is ungodly, it is not godly to stay quiet. That's the wrong thing to do. And so um, I know women who are more outspoken than me, who will go talk to pastors face to face, who will go right into, you know, right to the top and ask very direct questions of why is this happening? Why is that happening? That could be your style. Or it, could, it could also just be, you know, writing some emails, writing some letters, talking to your friends, t- you know. But if you see or feel that something is going on in a church where women are not being valued and not treated equally, A, don't be surprised, and B, you need to say something. You need to I, find a way yeah. to say something. And get get educated about I'm not usually, like, a take a stand. Like, let's No, you're not. 
let's have a you're far more quiet usually oh a call to action i was like what do we used to call it in the newsroom i'm not usually a call to action sort of person i'm not like advocating that people um act outside of what they feel comfortable with but i do think women have been taught implicitly if not explicitly often both that they should be quiet and submissive and to, to every man. Right. It's not just your husband. It's like you a life trait. Be, yes. It's quiet like a an... <laughs> submissive to every man <laughs> it's a life on trait. the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And you would never, I mean, I think that, so what I really wanted to get our conversation back to today, because there's so many conversations like this being had all over the world right now among believers, where we're seeing these really disparate, strange views, theologies that are having moments. They're having big moments. And I think it's because the world seems end timesy. You know, people are like, are we in the end times? Like what's happening, right? There's so many crazy things that have happened in such a short period of time, things people couldn't have imagined, right? So there all of a sudden is this rise, you know, there's this backlash against a very free, you know, free sinning culture in the church. There's this backlash going to super conservative, super conservative ideas about everything, right? This super conservatism that actually is possibly abusive to women is possibly really actually negative for men might have some really strange theological ideas about looking to men and, and political leaders instead of looking to God. I mean, really interesting things happening in our church, in the theology of the church. These conversations are happening all over the world. What do we really want to be as believers? You know, those that are the bride of Christ, those that in in the end, God says are really his people, they're the ones that have two things. They have the testimony of Yeshua and they follow his laws, right? And all of his laws, we're told, are about love. Every single thing he's done, he wants us to do, are about love. And so when you sit down and you think, what does it mean to love people? What does it mean to love well? You don't go looking in creation um, and see that see these you know kind of divisive layers these this this hierarchy. You don't go looking about well where am I in the hierarchy? You know that's not the attitude. You're not looking mm-hmm. at well men are men are above women so men get to have a say. When you really want to love people well, it's why I love the image of the menorah because the menorah has so many meanings. But one of the cool things about it is it's small at the bottom and it's wide at the top. It's the opposite of the satanic system, which is pyramid shaped. It's small at the top and wide at the bottom. Everybody's a slave to some one thing at the top. Everybody's looking to climb the ladder and get to the top. But in God's system, he is the root that holds up his family and his family has equal standing, right? It's this beautiful opposing image to what the world is constantly telling you to do. The world's constantly saying, achieve and be the greatest. And that's the one of the problems I have with this particular theology and philosophy is that men are the greatest at spiritual things according to the Bible, right? And so they're the ones that have a say. This is a pyramid-shaped structure. This is a satanic view of human beings. And so we need to re-engage with what are the real differences between men and women? Because they really are some. What are the real good, the the righteous positions of men and women? Because there are some, right? How And how do we balance um, the voices, right? How do we balance what, what we're saying? We're not going to go super feminism either, right? We don't want to throw... We don't want to throw moms under the bus. We don't want to say that it's not a righteous thing to be a stay-at-home mom. It's absolutely a righteous thing to be a stay-at-home mom. And But it doesn't mean you have less of a say in your church. I mean, we've got to stop doing these extreme swings back and forth. What does the Bible say? And if you really love people, what does that actually look like? And how does that play out in your church and in how you treat people and who you listen to? And shouldn't you be evaluating whether or not the teaching is biblical versus whether or not it comes from a male or female? I mean, we are evaluating based. It's you, you could take this, if you took this ideology to its extreme, you could say that anything a man teaches is right because he's a man and anything a woman teaches is wrong because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a dumb it's just dumb. So it leads it's to dumb. dumb. It leads to dumb <laughs> conclusions. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think I would say 
the focus, the, the, I don't know, how do I want to put this? Like the really, just to end things up here, the relentless focus on thinking about what does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be a woman is I think often really unhelpful. I, I think that if you are a woman, right um, then you're a woman. If you are a man, then you're a man. And your focus should be on God and on um, learning his word, learning from other teachers. There are so many incredible books, writers, thinkers throughout history, currently also working. Um, and then, you know, to do good works and do the will of God in your life. Yeah. And I think if you're constantly asking the question first and foremost, well, how can I be a godly woman or how can I be a godly man? It's just like, how can I be a godly me? Yes. It's going to be a lot more freeing, frankly, totally. because um, I think the other way around can be a bit of a trap. And I, I actually don't really see it a lot in the Bible. It's I see people being people. And of course, their gender plays a role in what right. they're doing and in what they're um in some ways, like with Mary, of course, she she has Jesus because she's a woman. She, you know, Joseph cannot bear the Son of God, uh, so you know that's that's Mary's deal. But right. and that's not something. If you want to have your own children as a woman, you can't just abdicate that role. Right, right. I mean that um, you kind of can, but it doesn't make a lot of sense too. It's very expensive to abdicate that role. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. But what you see with Mary is not a lot of questioning about how am I going to be a righteous woman or a righteous mother and just more like how am I going to be the Mary yeah. that God is calling me to be right now. And so yeah. I just want people to embrace their their multidimensionality, like all their interests, all the things they love, all the ways that God has made them. Um, I I you think know. you're right. I think you're right. I think it's come a lot up a lot in culture because we have a lot of gender identity stuff. And so I guess, I guess I think Satan has again used that to force the church to, or to try to lure the church into having this obsession over gender where I think you're right. When God talks about the bride of Christ, he's not saying it's only males or it's only females, right? It's going to be men and women in equal position as his bride. You mm -hmm. can't get around that in scripture. Women have the same Holy Spirit as men do. We're all following the same God. And God is going to ask each of us in our cultures. I think the reason that we don't see this discussed too much in the Bible or whatever is because if it was too specific, Paul is the only one that really goes there a lot. And it's because Paul is having cultural conversations with churches. It is not because yeah. he's making new laws, you know, but the, God's law doesn't get into tons. There are, there's some gender laws, right? There's some that are only for men, some that are only for women, but that's right. based on biological factors, not on anything else. And it's because God knows there are going to be so many different cultures through so many different time periods that each have different views of gender and why he's not, you know, Mary isn't obsessing about her gender in her culture, in her day, women did these things. This is how she had to live because of the culture she was in. We're in a culture right now where different things define what womanness is, right? So mm -hmm. we're in our culture. So you're asking the right question. How do I be the best me in this? How do I follow God and his word and apply his laws in this culture, in this day? I think it's one of the reasons God's laws are so brilliant, actually, is because they really beautifully span time, right? They, yeah, they, they really they, do. They, they, they're general enough to cover all these different cultures, all the different dress that happens over cultural time periods, all the different, you know, uh, different practices. They really can, they can cover in any place at any time. Whereas you look at other, you look at like maybe Islam or something, how they've applied some of their rules. They don't cover very well different cultures. In fact, you're not allowed to be in culture in some ways, um, in, in any way, shape or form. There's no like evangel evangelical kind of view, right? There's just, no, we did this this way a thousand years ago and you still have to do it this way. No matter where well, you are today. Depend, well, that depends Depending. on the type of Islam that's that's being but um, you don't enforced see... in some cases well, or practiced. Which Christians besides the Mennonites, I guess, and the Amish? Which 
even Messianics and, and Jews, which ones of them are still wearing robes from Jesus' time period? Mm-hmm. Well, I None. don't. I, Zero. I, I don't have a problem with people who want to wear robes. I think no. if you want to wear a robe, I'm just saying fine. because it's not embedded in. But you're saying that there's like a kind of way that in some forms of Muslim practice, they are they are still thinking or believing, I should say, that you these attire laws apply. Well, I'm just bringing that one up because I think that a lot of them are pretty abusive to women as well. Mm-hmm. But but I, I think more what I'm saying is actually when you look at the laws of God, they don't forbid you from being somewhat um, – no, there's a lot reflect of somewhat acceptable in appearance or in mannerisms yeah. to your culture. That's right. not what it's about because God isn't about your culture. God is about his kingdom. And so he might ask you, he might say, well, don't, don't look like someone who is disgraceful in your culture, right? Don't walk around promoting in your culture, a particular idea that would hurt, hurt people's ability to experience God in you. Right. But what does that look like in this culture? If, right. If I walked around and I had my, you know, if I was wearing, you know, head to toe covering, it would actually, it would actually conflict with my ability to spread the gospel in a lot of situations. And so God isn't asking us to do that. Right. So that's the beauty of what the Bible has laid down in its laws is a, is there's enough flexibility for you to be broad in culture, but still follow the Lord, still follow his ways, still, still be obedient. It's brilliant. And um, that's always fascinated me that it's been able to span. It's, it's been tested by time and culture. And yes, in some cultures, even today, you'll die right? There, there is no flexibility for you if you're a believer. Well, and but, certainly the Christian <clears throat> church has gone through periods of time where they've been incredibly dogmatic about things that were not main tenets of faith. So, sure. you know, there's, it's not a squeaky clean past, but I think right. the benefit of that, the benefit of coming out of the religious wars that happened in Europe was a kind of acceptance that has held that, it is okay for people to disagree about many things um, and that these are inevitable. Well, the religious It's, it's an inevitable were, challenge that, yeah. that believers are going to have and that you see in Acts, in the very first group of believers, they're having disagreements over can you eat the food that has been sacrificed Sacrifice to idols, idols or not, oh, or not and how are we going to bring in these Gentiles and what do they need to do? So they're, they had disagreements, strong disagreements, right from the start. And that's and they okay. weren't killing people over it. I think what I hate the most about some of the religious wars and the Calvins and the Luthers is they approved of the killing of people who disagreed with them theologically. Yeah. That's it not was the biblical. cleansing. It was yeah. like this. It was this. Right. And I think that's maybe what. That's not biblical. That's maybe what worries me the most about some of the things I see on the Christian nationalist side is that there is that kind of bent towards like purity, cleansing, like. But their not, version, their version. Right. Not it, allowing anything. Not biblical. Yeah. Um, tainted or something to come into. Uh, their home or their church, and I no, think- they'll they'll sit down and eat a whole you know plate of pork, but they're going to come <laughs> after you. They're going to come after you if you dare to teach a man in church. Yeah, that but is. I, I wish I could tell these guys like truly that that kind of thinking that no man could ever learn from any woman is so indicative of an insecurity. I know it's so much a telltale sign of a man who is just desperate for a sense of himself approval. And, and I feel if they weren't so obnoxious, I could (laughs) more easily feel sorry for them. Um, but I, well, no, the problem is that this type of conservatism is having a moment culturally and in the church. And I think that we forget that the false Messiah is going to be very appealing to a lot of Christianity 
and a lot of believers, a lot of Christians who call themselves followers of Jesus will be deceived by this person. So this is going to look really appealing to a lot of people. And I don't think this looks really appealing to a lot of people. No, but that's what the Bible says. The Bible <laughs> but says. But I don't. Th- I don't think that this sort of retro. No. But think about um, if someone came out and they were the perfect blend, right? They were the perfect mixture. They knew exactly how to spin. Um, we're going to go more conservative. We're going to be, but we're going to, you know, we're going to really take care of the poor. We're going to be, we're going to bring peace, right? We're going to be bring peace and prosperity and goodwill to everybody. We're going to have some level of structure. I mean, I just think those are things because that like you're taking a certain reading of revelation and I'm not sure where I stand on that, that reading of it, but I think those are things we should always be uh, aware of that there will always be people who are false prophets. There will always be people who are twisting. Like when we were a bit younger, it was the Joel Austin version of Christianity. Like God's here to help you get rich Uh, to the point where he quit. I don't know what he's doing now, but he definitely just stopped even talking about Jesus and his sermons, right? It became a kind of self-help financial seminar. I mean, there's always people who are grifting and are deceived themselves or are just, you know, trying to make a name for themselves or get famous or whatever. And that's an eternal threat to any, to any It's always happening. Christianity too. But I, I think that the end, the end person, it's why people really need to, it's, it's the, there's two sides of this coin of having so much access to information. I think there's a really negative thing going on with social media and the internet. There's a lot of really negative uses, but on the other side of the coin, I think God is using it to open people up to understanding scripture better because this is our opportunity to really get to know the God of the Bible, to really get to know what he has to say about all of this so that I'm not actually looking for the false Messiah. I think if you know what the actual Messiah is, nothing else will, you will know every fake that's out there. So what we really need to be studying is who is Yeshua actually? Who really is he? What is he really going to do when he returns? What are his signs? What's going to happen? And when you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, those things appear time and time again. They don't look like a lot of what Christianity does. They don't. There's a lot of stuff in Christianity that doesn't belong to the Messiah. And so the problem is, if somebody comes along with those signs and symbols, he is going to be able to easily deceive people. We need to know the signs, the symbols, the ways of our Messiah so that we can recognize him. I heard somebody say this the other day when, you know, they used to train people to look for fraud in bills, you know, in cash. They didn't just show them fraudulent bills. What you really study is what's a real one look like, Mm -hmm. right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to really study what does the real one look like. And if we do that, again, if we focus on loving people, I mean, I hope I I can come off kind of harsh. I actually, I I agree with you. I think the men that have this view, they're missing out. There's a lot missing out internally, obviously, for them. I think the churches that take on this view, they're going to do a lot of harm and damage that they never intended to do. I think when you put down any aspect of human beings who are all made in the image of God, you miss out. We need to love people really well. We can have conversations about sin, hard conversations about theology, but at the end of the day, when you go out into the world, you need to take care of people and love people well and see everybody as a human being. That is, you are not more made in the image of God than they are, right? right? We are, we all are equally made in that image and we all have equal opportunity before the Lord based on what we choose. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's really what we need to be doing as believers and then able to have good conversations around recognizing the real guy, the real Yeshua, the real one. You know, it, it's worrisome that some of these signs and symbols, some of these theologies, whoever comes along and embodies those things probably isn't Yeshua and they're going to miss it, you know? Well, I think that knowing scripture, I will just, I, I keep saying I'm going to end with this, but I am actually, because I have to go. <laughs> I, know, so I, am, I am actually going to end with this. I think that, um, oh gosh, what was I going to say? It was going to be great too. It was like a really final sort of. We're talking about recognizing the real Yeshua. Yeah. And a lot of these folks might be deceived. 
you know? Well, yeah. So in, in terms of just women and the church and the next generation as mothers and all of that, if you know the Bible, if you study it, if you are trying to understand it, it will be clear to you that God's love extends equally to men and women. And that in this, in the sphere of being able to teach and prophesy and grasp the will of God, there is no special dispensation given to men. It's not, it's not that way at all. So I think there, the men were priests in the old Testament. You know, a lot about why that is. Um, some of it certainly had to do with their laws around blood and bleeding, and that would have automatically been a, an issue for having female priests. Um, but certainly they had female prophets. They had Deborah, who was not just a female judge, but a female military leader and warrior. So there is there's space and room in the kingdom of God for his women and, of course, for his men and for all, all of his people. So I would just say if, if, if you are actually studying the word of God and seeking out who Jesus is, you're not going to miss that. Right. So yeah. that, you know, it's, it's telling that there are pastors out there who are clearly missing that. I question everything else they're saying, you know, <laughs> truly. Yeah. If you're missing, I, it's not that we don't all have our blind spots. Yeah. It's not that everything that everything else they're saying is necessarily wrong, but I would just go in with more skepticism about yeah. the rest of what they're talking about than I would otherwise. I agree. Well, Jess, I have so appreciated this conversation. I think it's really interesting, actually, when you compare some of what's going on in the view of women in the church and then some of how the culture views women, you sadly see the same spirit. Women are missing. Mothers are good women and good mothers seem to be missing in a lot of both culture and in the church. Um, but I think these conversations hopefully are going to be helpful for people to think through that on their own. Everybody, this has been Just Like Two. Just thank you for being here. Thanks, Rach. We'll do it again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Bye.